Hey, welcome to the Northside Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this message today. Our prayer is that this message inspires you, encourages you, uplifts you, maybe even convicts you a little bit with the help of the Holy Spirit. We're grateful that you're joining us here on our podcast. We want to ask that you would real quickly just subscribe to this channel so that you could be notified when new messages go up every week and be looking out for new content in the new coming year of 2023 here on our Northside Church podcast. Enjoy the message. Thank you for being here. If you're a visitor, we hope and pray that we've got to meet you before church. If not, don't be in a hurry. We want to meet you after church to uh, get to know you, okay? So this morning, we're going to continue our discussion of the Psalm of the Cross as we approach Easter. And uh, this kind of makes up a trilogy of Psalms, Psalms 22, Psalms 23, Psalms 24. It's kind of a trilogy of, of Psalms. Are the Psalms of the shepherd. In Psalms 22, you have the shepherd dying for his sheep. And in Psalms 23, you have the shepherd living for his sheep. And then you come to Psalm 24, and you have the shepherd returning for his sheep, coming back for his sheep. And so we are looking at the Psalm of the Cross. And last week we started... Uh, dealing with the crucifixion of Jesus. And so let's look at verse 14 and 15 this morning. Just two verses. And I want to show you something very interesting that I did not see until this morning, very early. As I was reading over the text and reading over the text and reading over the text, I came across this and I thought, wow, I can't believe I missed that. (laughs) But the Holy Spirit is so faithful in saying, hey, look at this. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. And I want you to note verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. Look at this phrase. You lay me in the dust of death. Last week we looked at the crucifixion of Jesus. We studied last week the self-substitution of God. The heart of the cross is God in Christ saving sinners. This morning... We're going to look at salvation of sinners. And I want you to consider this question that we're going to answer. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? I'll offer four answers under four headings. Number one, propitiation, the throne of mercy. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is angry with the wicked every day. God's holiness demands He react to objective evil with a steady, unrelenting, uncompromising antagonism. God 
His wrath and His anger is His attitude towards sin. God cannot sit back and do nothing. God's wrath. And His anger should bother us this morning. Because we are all under divine judgment. Whoever does not obey the Son, Jesus said, shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on Him. Meno, staying, remaining, constantly living under the displeasure of God. Who wants to stay here? John 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, even now. Is what that word means because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You cannot read John 3.16 and not read John 3.18. So we all stand condemned before God. Now we know, Paul said, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable, liable, answerable to God. God has promised that sinners will be punished. But all the wicked, He will destroy, the psalmist said. Psalms 9 verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell. Propitiation is appeasement which God initiates Himself. He averts His own anger and His own wrath against the sinner in order that we may be forgiven. Jesus became sin and absorbed the very wrath of God on the cross. Jesus appeases God's holy anger by becoming our substitute. And in death, Jesus placated the holy vengeance of God on those who repent. God. God takes His own loving initiative to conciliate His own righteous anger by giving His only begotten Son in order to calm His own wrath that's been turned against you and me. God's reaction to sin, punishing judgment, condemnation is so severe. Only God can save. Only God can die for me. Only God can satisfy Himself. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and come short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by His own blood to be received by faith. Halasterarian propitiation. Do you realize there's not even a Greek word for propitiate? We had to make up one in the English language that means to appease, which makes it possible that God can forgive you and me this morning. 
for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you, God said. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. God does not love us because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us because God loves us. God's feelings didn't change about sin, but God's feelings and treatment did change about me. And after dealing with the subject of justification by faith alone and the basis of God's overwhelming grace, this is what Paul said. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Propitiation. Propitiation. What was Jesus accomplishing on the cross? Redemption. The marketplace. Captive to sin. Trapped. Enslaved being held for ransom, imprisoned, the sorry state of the sinner makes an act of divine rescue necessary. We needed to be saved. Sinners exist in a state where there's no natural escape. We are under this tyrannical master with this unlimited ultimate power over our life that must be broken. Sin is killing us and the chains must come off. Living in the bliss of ignorance, relishing in the meaningless existence, hostile towards God, loving the passions of the flesh, convincing ourselves that we don't need God and even hating that He challenges our lives with objective truth, loving self more than God, walking on a broad way, happily disregarding the warning signs that we are actually on a road to hell. And the whole time we are dragging the chains of sin's restraints Constantly trying to make ourselves believe that we are actually free. When the truth is, is our independence is actually our incarceration. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, every one of you that practices sin is a slave to sin. Redemption. The ultimate saving work of Jesus giving his life in substitution for mine, paying the ransom. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, but to give his life a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to me, descended into our world, and assumed my liability before God. The supreme work of Jesus. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because I owed a debt I could not pay. The complete work of Christ. He purchased us, secured our deliverance, broke the chains from moral bondage, freed me from the guilt of transgression, wherefore I was condemned, free from the ruling power of sin to live a holy life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 
waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people. For His possession, zealous of good works, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then Paul says this, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that, he might, that we might receive the adoption of sons. I've been adopted, amen, not as a child, but as a, an adult son. And I've been given all the privileges of being a child of God. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to the, each one of our deeds, and you conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, Peter said, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, like of a lamb without blemish and spot. What do we mean by the blood of Jesus? We just sung about it. We read about it. But what do we mean by that? I want you to know that this is not an open denial to the blood of Jesus. But Jesus bought us at the price of His own literal blood. Pay careful attention, Paul said, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. What do we mean by his blood? Jesus is a man shed his literal blood, an expression of life coming to an end. It was a clear expression of his death. In redeeming sinners. It's not God's blood. It's not some mystical, magical fluid coming out of the Son of God. But it is death. The condemnation and the punishment for violating God's righteous standard. The soul who sins, Ezekiel said, shall die. Jesus shed His literal blood in sacrificial evidence and symbolic of pouring his life out for you and me. Jesus made a very bold statement in John. He said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is appropriation of the death. It's not the literal drinking and eating, but it's appropriation by faith of the death of Christ. For our Redemption. Number three. What was Jesus doing on the cross? Justification. The municipal courtroom. God's anger and His wrath has been averted. Thank God. Thank God. His attitude toward sin has not changed, but His attitude toward me has. Thank God it's been averted. Jesus came to where I was in redemption. Paid the price that I could not pay for my freedom. 
out from under the guilt and the power of sin. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Now I'm forgiven of my debt. And I have a new standing before God. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God forgives the sins and imputes Christ's righteousness. Puts it to my account before Him on the basis of Christ living a sinless life, dying on the cross, and as we will celebrate next Sunday, rising from the dead. I want to tell you what justification is not, loved ones. Justification is not God declaring bad people good. Justification is not saying that we are not sinners. A justification is God pronouncing a legal righteousness on my life. I am no longer liable and punishable by death. Jesus took full responsibility for my messed up life and your messed up life. They shall come, Psalms 22, verse 31, and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. Don't miss this. By God's undeserved grace, I have been given faith that I need to trust Jesus and to realign my life in a more permanent and fixed position to God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood... We are saved from His wrath. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Don't miss this. 1 Peter 3.18, that He might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. What has justification affected in my life? What has it done for me? Jesus has done everything necessary for me to be saved. The Father now looks upon me in Christ as if I had been sinless and perfect as Jesus is. Let that settle just for a minute. When God looks at me, He sees my life in Christ as if I was as perfect as Jesus is. I have this new quality of life. It's called eternal life. God's life. My heart and life now rightly love God. My mind knows Him. My will surrendered to Him. That's what justification does. All my obligation to God has been met in Jesus. And now nothing stands unaccountable between me and God. The slate has been wiped clean.
And now I have a hopeful future. Where my changed life, when I get to heaven, listen to me, that my changed life, when I get to heaven, will vindicate before all of glory that God has forgiven me and saved me. Holiness and good works is not the reason God deems me righteous. It's just a fruit of a transformed life. And all the glory will be to God. He does everything from everlasting to everlasting. And I'm sure of this, Paul said, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God's anger has been averted. Jesus came to where I am. I have been rendered guiltless before God because of Jesus. But number four, Reconciliation, the mending of a relationship. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That is, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. I want you to know this morning, if you're sitting here, that we are at war with God. And we are at war with people. And ultimately, we are at war with ourselves. And reconciliation suggests a dissension between two parties. Reconciliation presupposes that, that both parties are hostile to each other. Sinner is an enemy of God. And God is the sinner's enemy. The sinner is relentless. Ranging from silliness to this open renunciation and hatred towards God. But then you have God. Who is very present in His anger. And His wrath towards the sinner. But loved ones, the good news is this, that God has turned aside His loathing of the sinner because of Jesus. God moves towards men now. He Implying that there was a need for an end of this enmity and this animosity and this malice, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, Isaiah said. Your sins have hidden God's face from you. But Jesus came to do a radical repair of a busted relationship. In our relationship to God, He came and died on the cross and God was willing to count our trespasses against Jesus while not counting them against me. 
For there is one God, and that mediator is the one that brought us together. Now, if you do have a copy of God's Word, I want to show you something this morning. If you would, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I want to show you two reconciliations that have occurred. You know, I want to make a statement real quick that just came into my mind. And if, if I don't act on it, it, it'll be gone as quick as it came. There is so much going in Psalms 22. There's so much going on in Psalms 22. And I, I want to challenge you, loved one, as your pastor, as a friend, a lot of you I know is in our community. I want to challenge you that despite the fact that there's a lot going on in Psalms 22, that we do not permit ourselves to be hung up this Easter on externals. And we miss the internal of the cross underneath. What God is doing underneath all that external. Because we have a tendency in the evangelical church to play on people's emotions with the externals of Calvary. To the point where, I'm making a point, but the point is this. We almost become too sympathetic with the Savior instead of being sympathetic with our lost condition before a holy God. We find ourselves weeping and worshiping over a dying Jesus instead of over dying sinners who need a Savior. Do you understand this morning that our sorry state before a holy God is what put Jesus where he was in the first place? And what we really don't understand is like the book of Hebrews tells us, listen to me, is how we are to kind of process in our mind that the book of Hebrews says that it was a joy that was set before him. He wanted to die in order to do what? Fix our mess. The reason you sit in this church this morning, the reason you can raise your hand, the reason you can pray, the reason you can read the Bible, the reason that you have this sense about you in your heart of, a, of, of an abiding presence in your life of God, in the person of the Holy Spirit of God, is the fact that Jesus on the cross reconciled you to a God you were at odds with. The only reason you worship God now and God accepts your worship is because the hostility has been settled. And we must understand the essence of Easter. We don't weep for a dying Savior. We weep for lost sinners in need of a God to be reconciled to. And so although there's a lot going on in Psalms 22, it's the underlying thought that we have to get a hold of. And I read it in verse 15. What did it say? You have laid me in the dirt of death. Colossians chapter 1. I want you to note, first of all, in verses 15 to 20, there is a cosmic reconciliation going on. Romans chapter 8 tells us that all of creation groans 
under this curse that we are in because of sin now. Wanting to be redeemed itself. And hallelujah, one of these days, it will be redeemed when Jesus comes back. God will purge this earth with fire. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And for all eternity, more than we can ever even think of in our minds, Christ will sit on the throne and we will worship Him for however long that will be. I don't know. Amen. But there first had to be this cosmic reconciliating. Look what it said in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead that in everything He might have preeminence. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself things visible and invisible. God on the cross, cosmic reconciliation to this earth. But, Paul said, I'm going to bring it down into your world now. To a personal reconciliation. Out of all creation, loved ones, out of all that He has created, both in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, God's heart zeroes in. And look what He said in verse 21 and you. <laughs> out of all this creation and you. Church, let me tell you something. If that don't loose your tongue for just a moment to think, hallelujah, and you, and you, he said, who once were alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. In His body of flesh, by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach, before Him. What is the goal of reconciliation? Is it just to make me and God right with each other? That's part of it. That's not all of it. Before Jesus, my life was as bad as life could get. And it was even getting worse. In verse 21, he says, You were once alienated and hostile, doing evil deeds. Bad as bad can get and getting worse. And everything that you want to fill in between the lines, confused about God, hating Him suppressing any thought or truth concerning God. But Jesus, dying for me, in order to transform my life, changed everything about me that was wrong. And I want you to know that I'm living in the now. I'm into what God's doing now. 
No longer do I exist in what was then. But I live in now, he said. He has now reconciled you. Now things are different. Now I'm a different person. Now my heart is different. Now my will is submissive. Now I love Him with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind. Now I want to serve Him. I don't live in the then, but I live in the now. And you, now has He reconciled. This is what you once were, but it's not what you are now. Verse 21 is what I used to be. Verse 22 is what I am now. Now. Jesus died to bring peace with God, with people, and with myself. The goal of reconciliation is to form into me a holy, blameless life without reproach before God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bearing witness with my spirit now saying what? You're mine. And I close with this. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Jesus was averting the wrath and anger of God towards sinners. Jesus came to where I was and assumed my liability as a guilty sinner. Paid the price of release for my penalty. Jesus has done everything necessary for my salvation. And now the Father looks upon me as in Christ as if I was sinless. Jesus did a radical repair of my relationship to God. Amen. Jesus died for me in order to transform my life and change everything about me that was wrong. Thank God He did. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Salvation is never offered without a cost. The price has already been paid. Sinners can do nothing to earn nor bribe your way to the grace of God. A right standing before God only comes from me believing in Jesus Christ. Come now, he said in Isaiah. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, he says. Buy wine, buy milk without money and without price. You know what God says? I know you're hungry. I know you're thirsty. But I know you don't have anything. But I want you to come anyway. Bankrupt, poor, empty pockets, nothing to offer God. Come, he said. Come get you some water. Come get you some wine. Come get milk, he said. Those who have nothing to give, God says, come. Enjoy my goodness. Enjoy my grace. Salvation is extravagantly offered to somebody that doesn't have nothing. Wow. Now, I think this is a very serious point right here. Don't miss this. The invitation to come is actually a command. The invitation to come is actually a command that must be obeyed. It's a mandate. 
upon every one of us sitting in this church this morning that hears the gospel, and you've heard it today. It's a mandate that says obey or else face the consequences of disobedience. And what did Jesus say? If you fail to believe, the wrath of God abides on you even now. See, let me tell you something. Listen to me real carefully. This is not an option to consider. God's not putting boxes in front of your face asking you whether or not you want to check the box. You know what he's saying? You better check it. I demand you check it. It's a command. But it's not an option to consider. It's not a suggestion for you to ponder. For you to get out of this church and go up here to K-Bob's and eat a steak and think about what you've heard. Whether or not this is for you or not. I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, it ain't a Baptist thing. It ain't no denominational thing. It's a God thing. Amen. It's a God thing. You don't get to heaven by being a good Baptist. You get to heaven by being a child of God. Amen. So it's not whether or not you want a Baptist movement or whatever. No, it's a, do I want Jesus or not? It's a command. He said, do you obey it? This is a commanding force, y'all. On our life. And you know what he says? I need an immediate response now. Come now, he said. Let us reason together. Though your sins be exalted. You know what Paul said? Today is the day of salvation. You know what the writer of Hebrews says? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's a command. And I end with this. The gospel commands your obedience. And I plead with you today with every, th- with every ounce of energy that's in my body. Why not be obedient to the gospel?